Welcome to episode 101 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. With me is Nathan Fox in... I'm in Los Angeles. Nice to be home. Yeah. So when did you get home? Uh, I actually made it home from my trip on Monday because I had to go last week. I I actually ended up flying straight back to Oakland to teach a one-day class for a diversity-oriented group that I work with in Oakland. And then... I had to go to San Francisco uh, Saturday, Sunday to start my new class there. So then I, fin- I finally made it back home, home to L.A. on Monday. And um, yeah, I started my class in San Francisco last weekend, started my class in L.A. last night. And I will be back and forth to San Francisco the next three weekends um, to teach that class. So yeah, uh, I'm on Southwest Airlines if you uh, if you see me. Say hi, because uh, I got a stack of drink coupons. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to get some uh, tutoring time with you, you're saying, <laughs> on book the, a seat next to Nathan. On the plane? Yeah. No, no. I, I do have a, a stack of the drink coupons, though. So if you ever see me on Southwest, um, I'm buying. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so you didn't buy your return ticket, right? You bought it when you were there. So, you, But at some point, you had to buy it and come home, because you're close. That's, that's right. Yeah, I ended up uh, flying back from... Milan, uh, Malpensa in northern Italy, flew through JFK. Uh, Emirates was delayed by an hour off the ground from Italy, which made me miss my uh, miss my connection at JFK, which mm. means I got to spend a night in an awesome hotel on Long Island and get up at four in the morning to go back to the airport the next morning. <laughs> but uh, that's just some shit that happens when you're flying halfway around the world. It's yeah, kind of part of the game, I guess. So I'm looking at the agenda here and you have something that says digital field test, get a free LSAT. Yeah, yeah. What, what's that all about? You don't know about this? No. You got to get on Twitter, Ben. You got to start using Twitter. The Twitters, no, I- <laughs> the Twitters are really good for following um, news and announcements and stuff. So, okay. um, mm-hmm. you know, and you just have to choose who you follow so that you don't uh, follow, you know, any idiots like the president of the United States, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. but, uh, no, actually I do follow him cause it's amusing. <laughs> um, the, uh, they are doing another trial. They're doing another digital field test. Okay. Yeah. Good. And we have date here that we can announce. I got to look at this web page. Um, the website is digital LSAT dot LSAC dot org mm-hmm. is that better than last time uh wait i think it's exactly the same isn't oh it, it is okay digital lsat dot org okay i remember <laughs> us making a lot of fun of it but this it doesn't seem so bad anymore but maybe I'm i think just we're used I'm, to it i'm used yeah. to it yeah yeah digital lsat that has two l's in a row by the way digital lsat dot lsac dot org and uh yeah it's october 14th at 8 30 a.m they're seeking a total of 2,000 test takers this time, which sounds bigger. Yeah, I think last time they only had 1,000. Yeah. So this time it's 2,000. They are conducting a field test of a tablet-based LSAT administration system. This time you have to upload a photo. I don't remember if that was something that you had to do last time. but they're You did. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. The application period is open now. Uh, they are accepting applications until August 25th. Uh, it's free of charge. 
again, you know, you're not going to get a real LSAT score. They say you're going to get data back to help you prepare for the actual test, but we know how shitty that data was last time. So it's, I, and I don't see why they would give you any more. Like it says you're going to get a detailed performance report listing the number of questions you answered correctly in each of the three types. <laughs> So, and then they, and then they define the question types as analytical reasoning, logical right. reasoning, and reading comprehension. That's ridiculous. So you get to know how many you got right in each section, <laughs> and then also the number answered correctly for each of several skill areas. But remember, we looked at some of those reports that people sent us, and the skill areas, the way they had divided the skill areas up, was just not helpful. So you are not going to learn anything by doing this. You might, the, I mean, it will be real LSAT questions. Um, it'll probably be one of the recent practice tests divided up into some weird tablet-based system. Um, you, so you will be doing real LSAT questions, um, but you don't get a score. You don't really get a good performance report out of it. You're not going to learn a whole lot. The one benefit would be if you're the type of person who gets really super nervous about standardized testing at all, I would think that this might help you just because <clears throat> it's one more pseudo test day and you go, you know, you might just desensitize yourself to the anxiety by going and sitting through this thing. Um, I think the, the big downside here is that they're not going to tell you which um, LSAT that they're giving you. And so <laughs> you may have already taken that test or yeah. you may not have. It's not, you know, it's actually, it would be more helpful if they're like, well, this is actually going to be test 75. Test 72 or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so you can plan yeah. to not take that test. Um, that would be better, but of course they don't think about things like that. They don't, they're just, they need bodies for their digital field test. Yeah. Um, and I also, I mean, redoing a test you've already done before, not really that big of a deal. Burning up one of your 80 practice tests that you have available for study, if you've never done it before, and now this is going to burn one of those tests. Uh, so what? I, you know, I don't, that's not that big of a deal. I think students. Oh, make- I don't have a problem with people retaking tests or yeah. taking one that they haven't taken before. My concern is that people are going to waste their time to go out yeah. to some place to take a digital LSAT. The only real benefit then here is the chance of taking a test that kind of fits into your test schedule that yeah. makes sense for yeah. you to take in the limited time you have. And you get this refund check. This, yeah. This, this is a little bizarre. This is sweet. So they gave – It's last- sweet, but it's also like – it seems very lawyerly, doesn't it? Well, <clears throat> we've talked about this before. The, they They will give a refund like hoping that people don't file for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Last time they gave a hundred dollar American Express gift card to everyone who took the test, which actually encourages people who have no intention of taking the real LSAT to take the test. Right. Like, yeah, that's probably what happened. Well, yeah. that's it. We do know that happened. Yeah. <laughs> the people that were like sleeping during the thing. <laughs> that's awesome. Yep. So yeah. here they, they smartened up a little bit and mm-hmm. instead they're Instead of a hundred dollar, American Express gift card, they're going to give you a refund check for the full cost of an actual LSAT. Uh, If you take the LSAT from December 2017, anytime through June of 2019, you can apply for a refund of your test administration fee, which is $180. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, 
Uh huh. There's something around. It's really close. One seventy five, one eighty, something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, if you're serious about taking the test uh, this December or next year, then now you get hundred and eighty dollars for doing this. You have to jump through some hoops. You have to file for the refund. You know, and it. So they're they're counting on the fact that some people are not going to file the paperwork. Uh, but if you take the test in December, 2017 and you file for the refund, they're going to give you your full 180 bucks back. Yeah. Now here's the, here's the thing that I thought was a little lawyerly, although now that we're talking about it, it kind of makes sense, but they say you must take the actual LSAT and then earn a reportable score. And so because you have to earn a reportable score, it's not like you can take it in December and decide, oh, that wasn't a good test. I'm going to cancel, which most people shouldn't cancel anyway. Right. But you are sort of locked into getting a score if you want to get that money back. So yeah, if you're depending it, on that money, um, you know, think about that. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, but you shouldn't be canceling. And I think they're probably doing that because they're worried about people um, – like using it as an excuse to just walk out of the test center, like, ah, fuck it, you know, or, or yeah. if they had some yeah. violation, like where they're, they're, I don't know, they're, they're not trying to give you like a free role where you can like get away with shit. Yeah. They're saying you have to take the test. You have to do, you have to follow the rules. You have to get a reportable score. And if yeah. you do, I don't think it's going to be too much of a hassle. I think they're just going to write you a check for 180 bucks and, or just refund it back to your account or whatever. Yeah. Um, anyway, I thought it was pretty, uh, I thought we'd put out the PSA for people who, uh, happen to be now here's the other problem. Um, there are more testing centers in Canada than there are in California. There are zero in California. There are zero in DC. Um, there are, there's one in Edmonton. There's one in British Columbia and there's one in Toronto and another one in Hamilton. So there's actually four of them in Canada. What the heck? I know. How many how many Canadians are actually <laughs> taking this test? I mean, I we need to talk to Graham Blake apparently, I know. but like not I don't <laughs> you know, I think it's just cuz Canada is probably cheaper. And if you look at this whole list, they're doing it at like a bunch of shitty places, right? So Tempe, Arizona at the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine. That's one of the Whoa. one of the sites. Um they're not doing it in major urban areas um I do see one in New York City, though. So, yeah. Oh, there's, who, several oh, and there's one in, in Brooklyn. Shit. Yeah, yeah. I don't admit, who knows? I don't know what they're doing. I think they're just hmm. trying to screw us. <laughs> they're like, that thinking LSAT podcast guy is in California and the other one's in D.C. So, uh, yeah, this this one in Virginia is – oh, wait. No, we got one in Springfield. How that's far is that? pretty close. Oh, that's pretty close. It's like 15 minutes away. Oh, so. shit. So they, oh, they're trying to screw So they me. just don't like you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the closest one to me is in Tempe, Arizona, which I if I never go back to Tempe again, it'll be too soon. And uh, I – is the next – I mean, you know, it might backfire on them though because maybe I'll just go to um, Burnaby – in British Columbia, because I love British Columbia anyway. That's in the Vancouver area, so maybe I'll just, I'll just, I'll just uh, take a vacation and go up there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bastards. Anyway, um, yeah. California. That's that's conspicuously absent. That is strange. It's only their biggest market. I'd, yeah. Who knows what they're doing? Cal- things are expensive in California, or it's a far flight for them. They don't want to have to come back, uh, all the way out here, but. When they're doing it in Tempe and they're doing it in British Columbia, of all places, I, who knows? Who knows what they're doing? Um, 
there are this list of 30 uh, test center locations and registration is open between now and August 25th if you want to uh, get a free LSAT from the LSAC. Cool. So what else we got going on? We know your classes are starting, which is exciting. Your classes um, are going to, you're registering now for summer and for fall. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, so <clears throat> my last class for the September LSAT starts this Saturday. And Ooh. then, uh, yeah, the September or the, the LSATs, what am I trying to say? The classes for the December LSAT start in mid-September. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I have start dates. My program's a little bit different from yours, but my, I have start dates now all the way through, um, yeah, through through the fall in both San Francisco and Los Angeles. So if you're looking for a live class, now is the time. Of course, we also both have online classes where you can register anytime. Um, yep. And you can just check out our websites if you're interested in those. Ben is uh, strategyprep.com and I am foxlsat.com. Awesome. Hey, uh, so we got a donation this week. It was $44 from Morgan. So Morgan, if you're still listening to the show, thank you. Um, I'm not sure how uh, Morgan got to the $44 amount, but we'll take anything. What are you going to buy with your $22? Yeah, I promptly sent uh, Nathan his $22 over. So uh, I only tell him about the donations uh, some of the time. But when I do... (laughs) I definitely send over his share. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, what am I going to do? Well, I was actually thinking about this for a half second, and I was like, you know what? <laughs> we spend, uh, what do we spend? Like hun- hundreds of dollars a month, right? On yeah. this. Yeah. At the end of the day, so I was like, "Well, it just got eaten up by that." So <laughs> that's true. That's true. Our our hosting fees right now on Amazon are ridiculous. We still need to find a better solution for that. Um, we also pay to edit the show, and so yeah, we end up spending a few hundred dollars a month, I guess, to uh, bring you this this show. Um, we appreciate the donations. I promise I will spend my share on frivolous things though. If you, if you make a donation, I promise I will not use it for good. I will only use it for, um, something dangerous. How about that? Dangerous. That's my promise to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we might not have a show anymore. (laughs) Keep donating. Ah, who am I kidding? I'm going to spend it on booze. But, the, you know, <laughs> that is dangerous. So, Hey, that leads right into our next <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, item. Yeah. So there, there was this uh, New York Times article that came out on July 15th. It's called The Lawyer, The Addict. And, and the subtitle is, A high-powered Silicon Valley attorney dies. His ex-wife investigates and find a, finds a web of drug abuse uh, in his profession. This is actually not surprising to me at all. I seem to remember when I was preparing for the bar, maybe. I don't okay. know. I feel like I had to take an ethics class at some time. And, and that when I took that class, I remember them talking about like things like, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to sleep with your clients. <laughs> um, I remember kind of thinking like, oh, that's that's good to know. I'm glad we're, we're, we're laying that out. Uh-huh. Uh, and Lame. then... <laughs> Huh. Yeah, actually, I did. <laughs> that was not intentional. Um, and uh, they also just talked about the the problem with alcohol in uh, the legal profession. I guess it's the worst for 
white collar jobs, uh, maybe just for professions in general too. So yeah. this isn't super surprising, although this, this article goes into the opioid epidemic and um, the, I guess the problem that a lot of these attorneys have, which makes sense, these people are a lot of times very successful. And so the idea that you have to go seek help uh, when you have a drug abuse problem uh, is hard, right? And the other thing that I thought was most interesting about this article, again, this is in the New York Times, is that at the very end it talked about what some people call or researchers call the law school effect, which is basically that um, if you look at law school applicants or the ones who are actually admitted into law school, they are healthier, they drink less, and they are, you know, they're just in better uh, in better shape than the population generally, which isn't super surprising. I mean, these people are <laughs> trying to go to law school. I mean, that's a, a select group of people, but at the same time, they end up having worse problems after law school, and they attribute this <laughs> to the stress of law school and yeah, um, the sort of the combative nature of it. So, right. I mean, it's correlation causation, but I think. Uh, I think there definitely could be something to it. You know, well, there's definitely a, a disconnect in ethics when it comes to law school. So we should, you know, we're LSAT teachers. We we should probably talk about this correlation causation issue here and talk about, uh, you know, it's a little bit of an LSAT, maybe an LSAT um, trap for them to say, Imagine this argument, okay? It's kind of what you just said. Um, people who start law school have better health, uh, less drug and alcohol dependency uh, than average. But mm-hmm. after law school, these same people have higher uh, drug and alcohol dependency. Therefore, the stress of law school or, you know, the competitiveness of law school is causing these people to develop drug and alcohol dependencies. Um, could you push back on that? Like, what would you say? I see a problem there, or I was trying to make an argument that has a, has a problem in it. Well, um, I, I mean, we don't... <laughs> We don't necessarily – I mean one thing is age, right? As people mm-hmm. get older, maybe it's just uh, something that happens as you get older. But I think that uh, since that's not happening to people who are outside of law school, right? The, okay. the drug and alcohol dependency is not increasing. Right. It's relative to also, their cohort. Yeah, we didn't specify that in the facts, but we can specify that in the facts. That it's relative to your age cohort. When you before, yeah. before law school, you've got less drug and alcohol, but now compare yourself to people four years older who didn't go to law school, and now you have more drug and alcohol problems. Yeah. Therefore, the stress of law school causes you to develop a drug and alcohol dependency. Yeah, I mean, it could be the stress. It could be who knows uh, what else uh, is going on at that time. Uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting, and I'm sorry I'm not uh, <laughs> trying to come up with the flaws here, but uh, they talked about how in law school, and I, this totally resonated with me, the ethos is – Hey, divorce yourself from emotional slash moral considerations, right? It's not that law school is amoral, but there definitely is this underlying like ethos that, hey, when you're trying to argue a point, uh, try to move away from what most people 
yeah. would argue, right? Yeah. Like, stop thinking about this emotionally. Stop thinking about this from your worldview. Try to just think about this logically or analytically. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, first years, I think, tend to struggle with. But then uh, by the time you're a 3L, you know, you're in a class and someone says controversial, something controversial or, you know, that goes against the the norm or the normal ethos and no one is phased by it right it's just like okay yeah that's a that's another logical way of thinking about it i might disagree for this logical reason but the classes are much more subdued i mean also people are just kind of ready to get out of there right but yeah. you 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 embrace that ethos and what they're saying is that when you do that um it has these other, or it could, good. Uh, this is, you know, a causal claim, of course, but it has these other um, effects in the sense that you sort of also divorce yourself from uh, maybe moral slash emotional assessments of your own decisions. So then things that you may have hesitated to do before for various reasons, and those reasons may have been not the best reasons, but by throwing everything out of out of the – what am I trying to say? It's throwing all your morals, so to speak, um, out of the window and just saying, okay, well, let's see. Now what should I do? The, this can lead to depression. Whether that's right or wrong is a different issue, but <laughs> those are some of the results possibly of kind of embracing this amoral ethos. So yeah. I, I, <clears throat> I thought that was interesting. But yeah, to your point um, – I think there's a lot of things going on that could be yeah. causing this. All I wanted to point out was that <clears throat> that's one po- one possible interpretation is it's the stress of law school, right? The problem with my argument, the way I tried to phrase it was mm-hmm. I was specifically claiming that it's the stress of law school that's causing you to develop drug and alcohol dependency. And mm-hmm. what you're saying there is, no, actually, maybe it's the shifting to an amoral worldview, yeah, that causes you to develop drug and alcohol dependency. Um, <clears throat> I have actually a different interpretation, which I mean, in real life, I think that this is part of the problem. Sure. I think part of the problem is that when you are starting law school, you have like the whole world is in front of you, right? You 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 think because you have fantasies about what law school is going to be like. You you have these grand plans of what you're going to do with your life. And it's such a proud moment that you're going to go enter into this honorable profession and change the world. And what happens is half the people who go to law school realize that they are not in fact going to change the world. And so I don't know that it's, well, I mean, for some people it's the stress for some people, it's the shifting to an amoral worldview, but I think for, for sure, for some people, it's also just, having your your dreams crushed that that you thought it was going to be one thing and it turns out to be something entirely different and so you know on the front end of law school you're working out every day and studying and you know not drinking too much and like you're you're on your way to this you know fine grand career and taking care of yourself and by the time you get out of law school, you realize, oh, shit, I'm not going to make nearly as much money as I thought. I got shitty grades in law school. I'm going to have a hard time getting a job. And it's not necessarily that law school is so stressful. Uh, it's just that you now have a very different conception of what the rest of your life is going to be like. Yeah, that's actually uh, really interesting. Did you end up reading this article? 
Yeah, I did. I skimmed it. Oh, yeah, yeah, because that was one of the one of the points. I think, if I remember correctly, right? Oh, I didn't see that, but I mean, maybe I subconsciously did, and now I'm ripping (laughs) off their idea. That's totally Uh, possible. Well, I don't know if that's exactly what they said, but when you were talking, it it reminded me of um, something that they said in there, and as you're as you're as you're saying right now, that law school actually can sort of deflate um, uh, everyone's sort of you know, holy <laughs> uh, and righteous ambitions oh, but to that's, save the world. And, they, you know, they, they confront reality. That's 100% what happened to me. Yeah, which, which is interesting because a lot of times people, you know, when they apply to law school, they write about what they want to, how they want to go into public interest or whatever, yep. and law schools don't believe them. I would just think it's so ironic if it's the law school itself <laughs> – that's actually the reason so many people are failing to fulfill their, you know, their initial goals. Like, I guess I've always looked at it as people were just lying. Like, yeah, I mean, they weren't, maybe they weren't blatantly lying, but they were just kind of saying what they thought the law schools wanted to hear. But maybe it's actually the case that most people really do want to do those things. Oh, I think so. Then they go to law school and um, it's not that they were lying, but... No, law school says, you know, this is ridiculous. Well, the law Get school justifiably doesn't believe you because they know that that's not the reality for most lawyers. So, yeah. So well, you, you are legitimately, <laughs> I want to save the world, but they know that, yeah, okay, maybe one out of 50 of you is going to actually have any kind of impact. And, but the law schools don't give a shit because they want your tuition money. Yeah. I mean, that's the way I see the whole, the whole deal. And I I have to reinforce this. I was talking to my class about it last night and they couldn't believe me, but you know, I went to law school with ideas about how I wanted to use my brain to change the world. And, uh, I came out of law school with the idea that there is not shit I could do about it and that it's not, it's just, I just, I came out completely demotivated. I don't even like, I don't follow politics. I don't watch the news. I don't give a shit. I barely vote. I like, I just, I'm sorry. I don't care. And that's my considered opinion after attending law school. So before you start Mm -hmm. sending me hate mail, talk to me after law school and, and then we'll see how you see the world. Well, and that probably partly stems from that whole, like amoral ethos that I think is the underlying assumption of a lot of law school. Well, it's amoral. It's also like a scientific, you know, it's, it's sure. like when you're discussing like constitutional law is just such a crock of shit. It's not real. Mm. It's fake. Yeah. It's just, it's dogma. And I don't want to study dogma. I, I don't want to study the Bible. It's bullshit. I don't want to, I don't want to learn fake reasons for fake things. And when you study constitutional law, I'm sorry, but that's, it's fake. It's oh it's, for sure. It's a hundred percent fake. I, yeah. I do. I still remember actually my first year. Um, I came from an econ background, so econ is you know it's a it's a softer science than say physics, of course, or anything like that. But economists are still, to the extent that they can, trying to figure out how the world works, how people interact, and so the arguments fundamentally come down to. Is your model correctly describing the way the world works? If it doesn't, then we're going to throw it out. So the end goal is trying to figure out what reality is. I still remember sitting in class. I don't remember which class it was, but I was like, wait, we're not trying to figure out what the 
what the law is. Because what the law is, is just whatever anyone decides it is. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, this is just who can make the best argument for this position. And then in 20 years, it's going to be a different position. But then you and have I to pretend felt- to use the, the, the precedent, right? You have to mm-hmm. pretend that we've agreed that these, that this term in the Constitution is settled as meaning this. And it's mm-hmm. always meant that. It's mm-hmm. very Orwellian, right? We've always mm-hmm. been at war with Oceana. It's all, yeah. this has always meant this, except for all the times when it completely switched, uh, you know, 180 degrees. But now yeah. we're going to make a new argument where we use all of these fake historical definitions mm-hmm. <laughs> and pretend to follow precedent to arrive yeah. at the exact opposite conclusion that we arrived at before. Yeah. And then, yeah, the scientific thinkers in the room are just like, you got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, there's a certain type of person who has no problem just saying, oh, well, that's, it is what it is. That's the, that's the nature of the game today. That's the game we're playing and they can put all that aside. But for me, I'm too much of like a realist, you know, I, or I'm, I want words to mean things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. I want, I want logic and rationality. And when you start studying law, it devolves into dogma really pretty quickly, I find. Yeah. Hey, I had a random thought this week, um, and I proposed it to my class. I was curious what they would think, and there was definitely uh, two camps, uh, one that was in favor and that one was uh, adamantly opposed. But I I was like, what if, what if uh, I started a law school and it, it only went for a year? And it focused in on like what I would consider the four or five things that law school actually has to like help you with. And, and then like, I think actually those four or five things could be accomplished all at the same time. Um, and so, Hey, you're done in a year. (laughs) It costs less. Right. And, um, we're just focusing in on what you need. And what I'm thinking is you need to pass the bar you need to learn how to write. And as you learn how to write, you'll learn how to think like a lawyer. Yeah. And you can write topics that are focused on uh, the core, you know, legal doctrines like property law, <laughs> yeah. constitutional law. Sure. And so as you're, as you're doing these writing projects, you're basically learning the law that you would be taking a whole semester class on normally. Yes. But I think you're going to learn it so much better when you have to make an argument and you're like, yes. wait, I think this, Oh no, hold, let's look, let's look up the precedent. It's like the whole, like just force people in. It's like taking a practice test, just right. jump into the freaking fire and then you'll figure it out as opposed to let's okay. talk about theory for two years. This all sounds awesome. I, this is great. What did your class say? <laughs> Uh, so there was definitely like half who were, I was like, look, the first year it's probably not going to be accredited. I don't, I don't know how like that all works and it needs to be sorted out. But uh, that turned off like half the class. They're like, hell no, I would, I would not want anything to do with this, this university. And then there was another half that was like, I was like, would you pay $10,000? And then they said, honestly, I would pay the full rate of a normal year of school. So, you know, normal years, like what, 30 to 50? Yeah. And so somewhere in that range. And they're like, because first of all, it's only one year. Second of all, um, it's kind of related, but now I'm done. I can go practice in a year. And their point was sort of like, 
if you have someone who knows what they want to do when they are finished with law school, this one-year law school is extraordinarily appealing. Like, yeah. just get it out of the way, get it done, get the bar passed, yeah. and start practicing. Yeah, well, law school is an enormous waste of time and resources. I mean, the three years of law school is a joke. Yeah, and it's, it's expensive. Joke. It's yeah. super expensive. I, I, there's no reason why law school should take three years. They're not actually teaching. They don't even teach you how to pass the bar in those three years. Yeah, that's they, what they they outsource <laughs> that to Barbary. <laughs> then you have to pay Barbary another five grand in order to pass the bar. Yeah. You know, the summer after you graduate from law school, then you have to take a bar prep class so that you can have any chance of passing the bar because the schools don't teach you how to pass the bar. What do they teach you? I don't know. I don't know what they teach you. Well, I I can't believe, and I hope this is not true. So if anyone knows anyone in law school now and can please tell me this is no longer the case, but the one craft that you could take away from law school and really use your first year as an associate is your ability to write clear memoranda or clear briefs or whatever. Right. But this is outsourced to cheap 2Ls and 3Ls. Yeah. At least I'll, it was when I was there. Me too. I was a LWRTA in my second year, and I barely knew anything. I mean, I had made it through the 1L class, and I had done well in it. But I that doesn't mean that I was qualified to teach that. <laughs> I was actually, yeah, I was reviewing. So my, my teacher didn't like the, the people who were teaching that class barely even read the memos. It was mostly the TAs that were reading the memos. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's, and that's like what the one L's are paying $50,000 a year for. Yeah. Oh, and the funny thing is, you know, as a two L and a three L, you know, so much more than a one L. So naturally there's this certain like attitude, like, oh, well, that's not how you do it. Like you didn't follow the Iraq method. So here's your, here's your B plus, you know, I'm not speaking from experience. I don't remember what happened in that situation, but I do remember feeling like these kids were like, oh yeah, well, you know, this is how you do it. And let me show you and blah, blah, blah. And I look back at that. I'm like, this is absurd. There are people who have been practicing law for four, five, six years, and they're still figuring out how to craft briefs in the way that, (laughs) you know, will work well. And the partners are still like, okay, try again. You know, like this is a freaking process that takes time. So you need to like (laughs) get people who know their stuff and um, have the people do like moot courts. Moot courts are amazing because you have to make this argument. All of a sudden, you think about everything. You think about the precedent. You think about how you're going to frame your argument. Um, well, you have you know, to research, just, you have you, to write, yeah. and you have to argue. So yeah. yeah. Like I think a law school should just like throw people into that, and they're going to mess up their first time, but then you're like, okay, do it again. Now we're going to do a different area of law. And by the time they walk out of it, they know – the different areas of law that they argued in and they know how to write and they have some actual skills, you know? Yeah. Well, this is a brilliant idea, Ben. And your big problem here is that you're just not going to get accredited. I mean, law school, (laughs) that's that's what's going to happen because law school is a scam. The accreditation agencies are basically the law schools. I mean, they have like, they have the just very sim. they have their, um, their goals are really aligned, you know? Yeah, we've got like the fox watching the hen house here. And so, of course, they're not going to ever accredit a one year law school, because then how could the three year law schools continue ripping people off? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, here's my challenge for anyone who's so inclined. Um, uh, if you know anything or can research anything about the accreditation process, which is going to be going through the ABA because that was delegated to the ABA by the Department of Education, um, maybe there's a way uh, that we can – maybe there's you know a loophole in the, the legal code that allows us to get a credit or, hey, look, we satisfied these requirements. You have to give it to us. It's, or maybe we can help people pass the bar even if they don't graduate from an accredited school because, like, there are ways, right, to get through the bar process without graduating from an accredited school. Well, it's so, hilarious in California because the bar passage rate for accredited schools is less than 50% in California. So, oh, you got to be kidding me. You're saying that – so if you take the schools in California and you average their bar passage rate, it's lower than 50%? Uh, pretty sure. I think the av- – because I think the average bar passage – yeah, the average bar passage rate's less than 50%. And oh, these are all people awful. that went to accredited schools. So it's – you know, but oh, – bo- oh, but you can't – no, you can't start your own law school because we need to make sure that these are accredited schools. <laughs> but then the people that go to the three-year accredited schools and pay $150,000 still can't pass the bar exam. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's weird. I think this shit has to change. The more I think about it, the more I talk about it, I think things have to change. I can't imagine that this this can continue forever. It's just yeah. too much of a scam. And if I am, you know, and, and I do, I counsel young people professionally. Uh, my, my, uh, my best advice is don't pay for law school. Just don't pay for law school. Just don't do it. You can go yeah. for free and you should just go for free. Um, yeah. If you can get into Harvard or Stanford or Yale and you think that's going to write you your ticket for the rest of your life and you want to pay for those schools, that's fine. But if you're paying for lower ranked school, like at all paying, I don't think, I'm not saying don't go. I'm just saying don't pay. Yeah, yeah. Or pay less for a one-year school. <laughs> you pay for Ben's <laughs> Crazy Ben's Law School. Law school. They're like, what's the name going to be? And I'm like, I don't know, but the first uh, word has to start with an F and the last word has to be university. Yeah. So. <laughs> be a nice, nice little acronym there. Okay, so um, anyways, if anyone's so inclined to tell me the rules and help me figure out a way to actually get this thing off the ground, Email me. We did make a request last time for uh, Nathan's brilliant idea about um, the pit rankings to remind you what the pit rankings are. Um, Nathan had this idea of like, hey, you have the U.S. News and World Report rankings, which basically I would classify these rankings as the perceived value of law schools, right? Um, most people look to the U.S. News and World Report rankings to decide how valuable a law school is. So that's their perceived value. Then you have the above the law rankings, which are based on actual outcomes. Uh, what percentage of the graduates get jobs? What percent? How much money are these graduates making, et cetera? Um, the U.S. News and World Report rankings and the above the law rankings are different. I would call the above the law rankings actual value. So you have perceived value and actual value. And wherever there's a difference in perceived value and actual value, you have some potential windfalls, right? And so a couple uh, listeners, thank you very much, Christina. And I believe the other person was Chris, right? Uh, Let's go with that. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, I was thinking, looking great... in our notes here to see if we had it written down, but no, I, I very much appreciated the, all the back and forth because we, we actually were firing emails around uh, about these rankings. So yeah. yeah, thank you very much, everybody who, who wrote in. And yeah, we, we, we need to get that name right. Is it Chris? I'm pretty sure it is Chris. With okay. A K. Oh yeah. Chris with a K. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So thank you both. Um, some interesting findings from these rankings. So basically what they did is they took a look at the U.S. News and Report ranking and they subtracted the above the law ranking to see if there are any overvalued or undervalued schools. And I'll give you a quick example to help illustrate this. Let's take a look at um, let's take a look at Duke, for example. So Duke is ranked 10 on U.S. News and World Report. So most people would rank Duke very highly, of course, but below other schools like Stanford and so on, right? They say, hey, it has a value of 10. Above the law says, look, if you look at Duke's numbers and their graduation, the graduates and the jobs they're getting and stuff like that, we think Duke is actually ranked number four. So when you look out in the world, Duke is an undervalued school. It's valued at 10, but it's really should be ranked four. So you subtract those two numbers and you get a difference of six. Um, Duke is a good opportunity. If you can get into Duke, you're getting in there. Uh, you're getting into a school that a lot of people are undervaluing. On the other side of this, let's take a look at like NYU. NYU is ranked sixth, right, on the U.S. News and World Report ranking. So perceived value, six. Perceived value. Hey, this is a great school. But above the law says, look, NYU's graduates aren't doing so well, so we're going to rank, uh, you know, comparatively speaking. Um they're still doing pretty well, but we're going to rank them at 15. So if you go to NYU and you're thinking, ooh, I got into a top six school, well, it's maybe not as worth as much as you think it is because above the law is saying it's 15, so that's a minus nine, right? So uh, in <laughs> using <laughs> Nathan's terminology, uh, Duke is a pearl in the turd, and NYU <laughs> is a little bit of a turd. <laughs> Um, at least, you know, based on these numbers, it's, it's overvalued. Yeah. These numbers are, by the way, very silly. We're taking a ranking and subtracting it from some other ranking and then pretending that it has probative value. Um, I think it, it I do think it has like suggestion value, right? I think, it, I think there's some value here. Yeah. I think if you're, I mean, at the end of the day, you're debating between a couple of schools, bottom line here, don't just look at U.S. News and World Report report ranking. I mean, you should never be doing that yeah. anyways, but like, this is some more information you can take into account. You're like, hey, wait, maybe I'm going to sort of an overvalued school. And at the end of the day, when I get out of this place, um, it might have been better to go somewhere else. Yeah. We will uh, post the the pearl in the turd rankings. Um, this one's on Google Docs, so we can just share it with everybody. You can click on it and you can uh, see what the rankings look like, but I can also just read the top five, um, top five pearls and top five turds. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So again, this is subtracting the above the law ranking from the U S news ranking. And it, it does because of the, the way we did it here, it tends to favor the schools that have higher numbers to begin with, like <clears throat> lower rankings, higher numbers, because then they come up with the, it comes out with like bigger differences. Right. So the biggest, um, Pearl on the list right now is Drexel University, Klein School of Law. 
which uh, U.S. News has all the way down at 112 in their rankings, but above the law put at 46. So that gives you a pearl in the turd score of 66, which is the by far the 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 best pearl. Um, yeah, hugely <clears throat> undervalued. Yeah. yeah, but this is by the way. But see, it's also you're already talking about schools that are decidedly not in the top top of all the, of the, like no one think, thinks this is a top school, right? Not even above the law doesn't think this is a top school above the law has it at 46. So relative to us News's estimation of 112, that's a big difference, but I don't know. I think the smaller, sometimes the lower ranked schools, like you started off by talking about Duke and NYU, those mm-hmm. ones have lower um, nominal differences, right? Lower absolute mm-hmm. differences, but it's a it's a big difference relative to the ranking that they were given. So yeah. you might want to look a little bit closer or I definitely look at whatever your school is. If you're thinking about going to school X, you should mm-hmm. look at, at this ranking and see if there's a discrepancy. But anyway, um, the 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 pearls here from this analysis were Drexel, uh, Penn State, Villanova, Georgia State and University of Mexico. Oh, sorry, University of New Mexico. Those were the uh, <laughs> University of Mexico. Go down to Mexico. Well, yeah. I went to New Mexico because of you guys, damn it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, okay, so those are the five uh, pearls according to this ranking and then the five turds according to this ranking. Um, the worst turd was Emory, which uh, U.S. News has at 22, but above the law has only at 50. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big fall off there. And I have no idea. I don't know anything about Emory. So if someone from Emory would like to come on and discuss that discrepancy or defend your turd, defend the turd, you definitely can <laughs> do that. Um, then the rest of the, uh, uh, the turds were Indiana versus Indiana university, Bloomington, Wake forest university, university of Wisconsin, Madison, and Fordham. Those were the ones that had uh, much better U.S. news rankings than above the law rankings. I'm actually, I should, because I'm in Los Angeles, the, the sixth on the list here is UCLA. UCLA mm-hmm. has a uh, U.S. news ranking of 15, which puts it just outside the uh, illustrious top 14 law schools, whatever that's supposed to mean. But above the law only had UCLA at 25th um, based on actual outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, those are actually the big ones here. UCLA and NYU are the like higher ranked turds. Mm-hmm. What yeah. are the what are the the best pearls? Yeah, you brought up Duke, mm-hmm. Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt, yeah, seventeenth by uh, U.S. News, but eleventh by Above the Law. Cornell, thirteenth mm-hmm. by U.S. News, but eighth by Above the Law. Okay. Anyway. Uh, people can click around with that and uh, yeah. Thanks again for um, Chris and Christina and Oh, Annalisa. It was Annalisa and Christina that were uh, helping with these rankings that we're going to post. Yeah. Thanks again. Yeah. All right. So uh, email. Yeah. 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 Let's do it. Okay. Do you want to jump into this one? Sure. Okay. Um, Hey, Nathan and Ben, I'm a big fan of your podcast. Thanks for all of the invaluable advice and for entertaining me through the slow demise of the NYC subway system. (laughs) I registered for the July LSAC forum in D.C. thinking I'd be in town at the time. My plans changed and I will no longer be there then, but I'm considering making the five-hour bus trip down in order to attend. 
Do you have any insight you can offer on the value of these forums and whether it's worth a trek? If it affects anything, I'm taking the LSAT in September, so I won't have a score on file at the time of the forum. Thank you so much. And the name here is Redacted. Uh, I was actually just thinking about this forum this morning. I don't think that they are value-less, but um, I don't... I Personally, I would put much more time and effort into just focusing on your LSAT score. Um, it reminds me of uh, something that Steve Martin, I just saw him say on some uh, masterclass ad. Have you seen these masterclass ads? No. Um, so masterclass is like an online thing, and it gets these like famous people to teach a class in an online form. But uh, Steve Martin said that um, he gets people coming up to him all the time asking him like, hey, like how do I how do I get an agent or um, what what should I say when I when I talk to a producer or something? He's like, look, you want to get into comedy? Your first goal should be to get good at comedy. Like, stop worrying about <laughs> this. These like so you know yeah. this this like silly stuff. It's kind of like um, so I want to go to law school. How how do I do the writing sample or how do I uh, how do I create an account on LSAC.org or whatever? It's like. None of these things really matter until you get everything going with your LSAT and your LSAT score. I mean, your GPA is in the bag, so now it's time to just knock it out of the park. You come in with a good LSAT score, everything else is going to fall into place. You're going to figure out how to apply. You're going to find the schools you want to apply to. So are these forms valuable to some extent? I think they're only valuable if they provide motivation for you to study harder. Otherwise, I don't really care about them. Yeah, that's, I think that's uh, about as good as I could say it. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah. Is there some value? I've heard of people, you know, going to the forum and making a connection while they were there and later on ending up getting into some school because they, you know, they thought that they had made this connection that really made a difference. Mm-hmm. Um you certainly can go to these forums and get fee waivers from schools. Yeah. That yep. could make it worth your while if you go around and sign up for all of their spam lists and get um, fee waivers. Mm-hmm. That could be worth a hundred bucks a pop. Yep. So if you can accumulate 10 fee waivers while you're there, you know, that that's a, in a way it's a thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, you could probably also get those fee waivers though, by sending emails. Yeah. Um, I have heard stories of people arriving with an LSAT score in hand and mm. you being able to leverage that with the schools, like, because then they know you're like a qualified applicant. Yeah. The conversation doesn't start until you know where they're scoring, right? It's sort right. of like, well, are you in the one forties and you're just really excited about the possibility of going to NYU? UCLA? Yeah. <laughs> they're like rolling their eyes at you. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Nice talking to you, but I'd really like to talk to other people who might actually have a chance here. Yeah. Well, at that point they just want your application, right? They're like, Oh, absolutely. You should definitely apply to NYU. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, we consider every page of your application. We, we, we hope, we hope you apply, you know, because then they have a higher yield or whatever. Um, but when you show them your 168, mm-hmm. uh, then they are going to be much more willing to communicate. And I have heard of um, fee waivers being offered on the spot because of LSAT scores. Yeah, yeah. So if you give them the impression that you're a really highly qualified applicant, 
then you might find that they're going to be a little bit more forthcoming with those fee waivers. Um, but yeah, does it help you get a higher LSAT score? No. Does it take up a bunch of your time? Yes. Uh, is it worth driving five hours? I absolutely not. Yeah, that sounds really far. I The last thing I would say is, uh, and I got this from Anne Levine, so thanks, Anne. Um, she said that when you are going around from table to table uh, they and you're talking to people, they will put a little note next to your name uh, if they felt like it was nice talking to you. Uh, and they will put a note if they felt like it wasn't nice talking to you. So yeah. it's a small, soft factor. But I think sometimes people go to these things thinking that there's like this massive disconnect between the person standing at the booth and, you know, some big machine back in New York yeah. or wherever they're coming from. And it's like, no, these are pretty small outfits. And you're probably talking with people who might <laughs> actually look at your application. Oh, it might and, be the person who's going to make the ultimate decision. Yeah. So and it might be, be the super person nice. who's going to offer you money. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I would be well dressed. I'm not saying you have to strap on a suit, but you know, you don't want to be in there with your Guns N' Roses t-shirt either probably. Yeah, and don't go there with stupid questions like what's your LSAT median that you can look up online, yeah, right? Yeah, look look like, like you're yeah. prepared. If you're going to talk to them, ask good questions. And and yeah, be nice. Smile, mm-hmm. say hi, try to learn people's names. You know, later on when you're waiting for your decision from this school, if you had made a connection with this assistant, associate, whatever admissions person, you could send them an email and say, hey, you know, I remember talking to you at the forum. We had a nice conversation about whatever. I'm just wondering if, you know, it's been been a month now since I submitted my application and I don't want to bother you, but I was just wondering if you could if there's any information for me, I think that could have a lot of effect, right? Like it could be that that person totally remembers you. They look at their notes. They notice that they put a star next to your name because you had some nice conversations and all of a sudden now your application is like jumped to the top of the pile. Yeah, no, I, I think that could be helpful. I I still think it's like icing on the cake. And if you don't have the cake, there's no, (laughs) you know, good one. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's not worth one more LSAT point. Yeah. So if you're if you're weighing, you know, a day of solid LSAT studying or even a couple hours of solid LSAT studying versus this trek to some LSAT forum somewhere, LSAC forum somewhere, uh, yeah, you're probably better off just um, just studying. Yeah. I mean, if you're in the area and you study in the morning, you can only study a couple hours every day anyway. So then maybe go check it out in the afternoon and try to leverage some of these contacts. But you're, it's secondary. Well, you're also not going to learn shit about law school by going to these things, right? Yeah. Like, you're going to learn the rosy side. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all their dumb, glossy brochures, and they're going to tell you about their their new special concentration that they have, <laughs> you know, in some area of law that doesn't actually even exist. Right. Some yeah. fantasy of like, Oh yeah, you, we've got this great new program in um, virtual reality law. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So we got connections that. in Silicon Valley. You I bet believe. somebody has that. I, I can't, if, if you, if someone out there can send me a law school brochure that has uh, a picture of someone wearing virtual reality goggles, 
I would really appreciate it. That'd be awesome. We would post that on um, thinkingelsat.com because that must actually, we can't do that because we'll probably get sued. But anyway, we will mock it. If you send us a, a brochure, a picture of a brochure, please, it's got to be a law school brochure and it has a photograph of someone wearing <laughs> VR goggles. <laughs> this, I, <laughs> I almost guarantee this exists. And, and the title would be something like, Legal crossroads. Or, exactly. You know. Yeah, totally. The <laughs> law of the future. <laughs> Privacy oh in the law. <laughs> I can't wait to see this shit coming in. I'm, I actually think I've already seen this before from UC Hastings, of course, would be the yeah. first ones to have something stupid like this. From but. your favorite dean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> should we, uh, should we, we move should on? move on, but hey, yeah. I should, we should end this because I like what Jack says here. He says, necessary question mark sufficient question mark you're the experts um but i wouldn't be so quick to discount the power of the pencil wait what oh you're skipping to reading, the next email I, what are you, doing? You, you deleted the email <laughs> oh <laughs> i always do that um, yeah sorry i'm reading the end of the next email sorry sorry jack who are, who are we just talking about we'll move remember. on to jack but we were talking oh, it was about redacted yeah. yeah okay right anyways uh, let me read jack's I, i'm sorry jack i read your punchline first um You said, this is amusing. Cool. Nathan and Ben, I just listened to your most recent podcast, and I have an anecdote for you regarding the amount of pencils I brought on test day. Sweet. I hate writing with pencils, and I particularly hate writing with dull pencils, so much so that I did all my prep with a pen. That's a mistake. Yeah. (laughs) I, turd. (laughs) Yeah. I bought five pencils to oh sorry I brought five pencils to my first administration I scored a 162 for my second administration however I brought 20 pre-sharpened <laughs> pencils Ooh, double no quadruple allowing me to discard dull pencils at will and often <laughs> I'm just imagining Jack like throwing the pencil over his shoulder like he 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 answers five questions and then he looks at it nope it's not perfectly sharp anymore it just tosses it like stabs somebody in the eye <laughs> yeah that'd be gutsy this time i scored a 172 holy cow oh, wow. we're totally wrong yeah. now this sentence makes so much yes. sense necessary question sufficient question um you're the experts, but I wouldn't be so quick to discount the power of the pencil. Yeah, I wouldn't be so quick to discount the power of the pencil, too. You should have been practicing with it the whole time, Jack. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is definitely the cause of your 10-point jump into the 98th percentile. So I guess we need to redact our previous advice. Yeah, it's clearly the pencils. You should bring as many pencils as possible to the test. Um <laughs> You might want to throw them over your shoulder. Buy shares in a um, pencil manufacturing company and just show up with like a whole case. I don't know if they'll let you bring a hand truck to the test, but if they did let you bring a hand truck, you know, then that would help you to carry uh, more um, cases of pencils with you. Why didn't you bring 40? You would have gotten a 180. Right. Obvious. I think you need 100, don't you? One per question. Yeah. So wait, here's. Oh, no, it's actually two per question. No, he brought 15 extra this time. Oh, that's kind of good. <laughs> he but, brought 20 pencils. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> hey, we need to get into this. We need to create a thinking LSAT pencil. We do need a thinking. I have Fox LSAT pencils. Yeah. Um, it, but yeah, it, could we, have like, it could have motivational like notes on the side. Like, you know, none of this matters. Um, uh, 
Don't stop pay worrying. for law school. Don't pay for law school. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stop, stop hur- rushing. Stop yeah. like we that. are going to start selling gear pretty soon, by the way, audience. And you are going to be responsible for buying that shit. But we're going to start selling some uh, some T-shirts and some pencils and some stuff like that. So stay tuned. That's on our yeah. agenda for And your mugs, right? You got to sell your mugs. Yeah, mugs, pencils, T-shirts. And uh, by the way, we also owe T-shirts, right? We, we, are, uh, we are going for the, the two folks who submitted Pearl in the Turd rankings. That definitely gets you a free Thinking LSAT T-shirt. They don't exist right now. But when yeah. they do exist, please send us a note and we will make sure we get you um, sure. a free a free thinking LSAT t-shirt for submitting we, those Pearl in the Turd rankings. We promise to get you those shirts by December of 2018. <laughs> Just like the LSAT <laughs> is. <laughs> Prom- <laughs> promising to change the number of tests by 2019. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. So this next one is from Peter. This is a wall of text. Yeah, it's about whether he should retake. Okay, I'll I'll skim through it uh, pretty quick. Okay, go for it. <clears throat> um, wanted to give you guys my updates after a December first try and a June retake. Thanks for having fielded several of my questions already. Here's the quick recap of my story. So, listeners, longtime listeners will uh, will know Peter's story already. Um, Peter, age thirty three. In the process of closing up my freelance work and retiring from classical music, hold a PhD in classical piano, have taught at the college level. Annoyed at myself that I only have a 3.5 undergraduate GPA, aiming as high as possible for the LSAT. December scored a 164 on half-assed self-study and one tutoring session from Ben, which uh, Peter said was very helpful. Uh, In June, 170 exclamation point. Perfect games, minus two on reading comprehension, minus seven on logical reasoning. (laughs) I like this part. I'd like to echo something NyQuil Mike said after he went from a low 160s (laughs) to a low 170s score. Like him, like NyQuil Mike, I was also guilty of taking a zillion tests and not reviewing thoroughly enough, hoping for a high number to magically appear. Also like him, on the second time around, I rarely, if at all, took full length practice tests. Rather, I took one or two 35-minute sections every day and reviewed mistakes thoroughly. My story is perfect evidence that the approach for which you both advocate is the right one. So we... <laughs> I, wait, hold on. I like everything about that except for the fact that he claims that his story is perfect evidence, perfect evidence. for the approach. Hasn't the LSAT taught you anything, Peter? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is good evidence or maybe some it's, evidence. It's but. evidence. It's a data point. But, um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Well... We are big advocates of doing timed 35-minute sections. We agree that you should not move on to another section until you have thoroughly reviewed your mistakes from the previous test or from the previous section. And uh, it's a really common mistake that people hammer practice test after practice test after practice test without learning anything from those tests. Yeah. So it's a, this is a nice update here that Peter followed our advice Uh, focused on 35 minute sections, focused on really deeply reviewing those sections before moving on. Cause otherwise you're just wasting time. Um, and you're not actually making any progress, even though you're doing a lot of work, you're not actually making progress. So here Peter did make progress with self-study and made it to 170. So congratulations on that. 
By the way, this comment and your comments just reminded me of those people who, you know, they, they take a test and it goes poorly. They get like they're expecting a 164 and they get like a 158 and they're they're like, oh my goodness, what happened here? This is awful. And then I'm hearing this all after the fact. And they're like, I took that test. I did horribly. So this is not official. This is just a practice test. So I decided to take another one either that same day or the next morning. And if you have ever done that or been tempted to do that, it shows that you are not thinking about this whole process in the right way at all. Because what you're doing is you're doing exactly what kind of Peter mentioned here, and that is uh, taking a zillion tests and hoping for a high number to magically appear. Like you're you're so obsessed with the score and um, – that as an indication of where you need to be as opposed to like being obsessed about the questions you get wrong or don't understand, even if your score is high. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter where you are unless you're at 180. That means you made some mistakes and you should be digging in and figuring out those mistakes. And I wouldn't be surprised how many 180 ers are still looking back at questions and saying, Hmm. What yeah. do I think about this one now? Yep. Anyways. Cool. Um, <clears throat> he go, Peter now has a question for us. Um, I feel that I have good soft factors, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Nathan, do you remember coming up with some surprising evidence, uh, surprising, some surprising advice for your student, Ken, in episode 82, who also had a 170, you suggested that he retake the LSAT and plan on canceling if the games don't go perfectly. This would almost guarantee the retake wouldn't be lower than his best. The reason this feels like it could apply to me is the following. Um, blah, blah, blah. I'm speculating that I need higher numbers. I have practice tests in the 173 to 175 range. But I feel on any given day, I could also land in the 160s. I'm not always perfect on the games. So I feel like I was lucky to have those easy June 2017 games. I also was never better than minus three in reading comprehension practice, but I actually scored above average, only minus two on test day. Needless to say, as good as 170 sounds, it's clear to me that I still have a tremendous amount, especially minus seven on logical reasoning to learn about the test and become a stronger logical thinker. So what do you guys think? Take one more swing in September. The registration deadline is August 2nd. Wait, I'm confused. So he says some of the top schools, a 3.5 and a 70 might, 170 might not even get looked at. Penn in particular. So I just looked up those numbers. Am, am, I, am I wrong here? Is Penn State different than Penn? It's the yes. same thing, right? No. Or it's different. Okay. So what's what's why is they why do they have pretty much the same name? They just add the state there. Isn't that University of Pennsylvania? Is U Penn? I guess that's Penn. And Penn State. Yeah, then is you have Penn, Penn state. state. Never mind. Okay, forget it. I was like, <clears throat> you're doing pretty well <laughs> at Penn State, but that's not. Well, where it's probably not horrible at U Penn. I mean, well, I'm trying. Yeah, I don't see it here. Oh wait, wait, wait. wait. No, I got the 509 not. report, dude. Hold on. Dude, dude, dude. 509 report, 25th percentile GPA, 3.57. Yeah, so Peter's below the 25th percentile. And then, but LSAT score, I mean, 75th percentile is a 170. So mm-hmm. 
you're below the 25th percentile on GPA, but you're at the 75th percentile on LSAT, they're going to look at that application. For sure. They're, they're going to strongly consider that application. Holy shit, Penn costs $61,000 a year. Oh, good. I'll use that number for the one-year law school. <laughs> wow. Oh, that is insane. Holy shit. Oh, but then 46% of the people get grants. Oh, so, yeah, well, you got to remember the 61000 is what? That's the MSRP. Yeah, it's, so almost half of the people are getting some kind of money. Um, 5% of them get full tuition. Uh, 8.1% get half to full tuition. And then 33% get less than half tuition. So they are charging a shit ton, but then they're giving it away for free to 13% of the class. Mm-hmm. Or whatever, almost free to 13% of the class. And then they're also giving an additional half of the class somewhere up to 50% uh, scholarship. So, yeah. I mean, it just reinforces the idea that if you're paying full price at a school like that, you're just getting ripped off. You're, you should just not pay that much money. I, I would never allow someone to pay that much money. If, it, if I was making the decision for them, there's no way you're paying full price at a school like that. Yeah, I just don't care. You can go somewhere else. You can go somewhere else for so much less money. There's no way that's worth it. Yeah. And that doesn't apply just to Penn. I mean, that applies to every law school that's trying to charge you $61,000. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, this might be obvious, but if anyone's looking for the 509, you just Google the school and 509, and it's usually the top result. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, So what do we think? Do we... I I don't know. I'm not, like, really anxious for Peter to take it again. Now, if his practice test scores, like, if he keeps prepping, and if his practice test scores are really consistently, like, 175, then I would take it again. Mm -hmm. But, you know, can... Is he really going to get himself to that position? Um, I guess I don't hate that strategy of take it and cancel if you don't score perfect on games. Because he'll know if he scores perfect on games, right? Yeah. If he does, then he probably scored 170 or higher. Yeah. But, I mean, I would let the practice tests be the guide. I don't... uh, You definitely don't need to take it again. Um, But if you did, and if you did get a 175, I mean, yeah, that would make a difference. And if he's taken a lot of these recent practice tests, then... And he he retakes them, then he's going to have to kind of pushes numbers up a little higher, higher standards. So he's going to be needing yeah. to get 178s and 179s and really mastering those ones that he's done before. Yeah. And if that's the case, then it seems like it might be worth taking a shot. I'm a big like I'm a big advocate of taking it again because I don't really think there's a lot of downside to it. Yeah. But in his case, he's he's improved a lot. He's already taken it twice. He's got a 170 on record. You, you don't very frequently need higher than a 170 for anything. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I don't know. It's a toss up. Well, given the fact that he'd be taking it in September, right? Like there's little downside to at least trying and then maybe withdrawing at the last moment because it's not going to slow down his application process. I don't think. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's go through some of these bullet points here. Uh, comments. These are mostly silly Uh, Feel free to skip or read some of them. Nathan and Ben, stop being apologetic for being self-serving in promoting your tutoring and classes on the podcast. 10 exclamation points. 
<laughs> you need to do it more, all caps, because it sounds to me like more listeners need more one-on-one time with you. Wow. Peter is really kissing our ass here with some um, commercials. To yeah. my fellow listeners, <laughs> the return on investment you can get from a couple hundred bucks for tutoring slash thousand bucks for a class is a no-brainer. I'm a former tutoring student of Ben's, who scored 170. Um, number one pearl of wisdom I took with me on test day. Nathan said in the driving to the test center podcast to quote, play your game. Swinging for the fences is the best way to strike out. Just make solid contact. And sometimes solid contact results in a home run case in point. I didn't finish one of the LR sections. I had two guesses, but I still scored 170. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I, and I like that. I do like that metaphor a lot. You know, I'm not up there trying to yank it out of the ballpark. I'm up there just trying to make solid contact. And if I can make solid contact, then good things happen. I like the metaphor. I just yeah. don't like baseball. <laughs> baseball is <just laughs> super boring. <laughs> Except for the Dodgers are awesome all of a sudden. Holy shit. The Dodgers are amazing. Um, <clears throat> okay. Here's a, this is to me, Nathan, having regularly heard you deride law school and life as a lawyer, I remain super interested in the whole thing. I've spent close to two years considering this move, read a lot about law school, had coffee and beers with a lot of lawyers and sat in on several classes doing during university visits, all of which I found fascinating. Studying for the LSAT was stimulating and fun for me. And I am insufferable in daily conversation now with my friends about detecting invalid underlying assumptions in arguments. I'm willing to work hard for a good salary. I've loved music, but I can't physically do it forever. I'm dying to hear you admit. Do you think it's maybe even a little bit possible that law school would be a career, a good career move for me? Um, so since that was directed to me, I will answer and, um, I just would say, yeah, if you are indeed insufferable, then lawyering is probably a perfect fit for you. That's a little bit of a joke, but it's actually only like half of a joke. Um, Lawyers do tend to be kind of insufferable. And if you're the type of nerd who is going to really enjoy playing this game forever, then um, it sounds like this might be a good fit for you. It's great that you've interviewed so many lawyers. It's great that you've sat in on several classes. I can't believe you actually found them fascinating, but if you did, then yeah, it sounds like this might be a good fit for you. So I am willing to admit, uh, Peter, that this sounds like, um, sounds like it could be a good fit. I feel sorry for your friends and family if you're going to be arguing with them like this all the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it sounds like you're on the right path. So congratulations. This is interesting because his question makes it sound like you think no one should go to law school, but I always thought that both of us are like, look, don't go to law school unless you absolutely know that's what you should be doing, and then fine, we'll help you. I mean, that's that's yeah. what we do. That's how we make money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I do spend a lot of time trying to talk people out of it, and I think that the typical class, that should, like on day one, probably half of the typical class really should go to law school. Um, Mm -hmm. at least in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I also, I'm also changing. I mean, I used to say don't go to law school, but my new thing is don't pay for law school. Mm -hmm. So, cause even, you know, even with Peter, um, yeah, it sounds like this is a good fit for you. Yeah. Sounds like you're going to love it. You know, you might, you know, you're going in with your eyes open. I mean, most people have done nowhere near (laughs) This two sort years of investigation. Yeah. <laughs> two and years meeting with people meeting with multiple lawyers sat, sitting in on several law school classes, enjoying the LSAT, you know, being 
like finding the LSAT stimulating and fun and then achieving a really high LSAT score of 170. All of those are really good data points for, okay, yeah, you might be on the right path, but I would still tell Peter not to pay for it. Mm -hmm. If there's any way he can avoid paying for it, he should avoid paying for it. Yeah. And if that means that he doesn't go to Penn, if that means instead he drops down in the rankings a little bit and takes a scholarship somewhere, uh, boy, it's hard to make the counter to that argument. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I do tell a lot of people don't go to law school. I'm not telling Peter not to go to law school. I'm just telling Peter not to pay for law school. Cool. Okay. Honestly, thanks for everything, guys. Best wishes, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Yep. Uh, okay. So next one. Hi, Nathan and Ben. Please don't use my name if you read this on the show. No problem. I got my LSAT score back last night and I am thrilled, obviously, that I got a 178. Whoa. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, missing only two questions. Wow. I'm surprised that. There was no 179 on this test. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Miss two questions. You get a 178. Miss one, you would have gotten a 180, I guess. Yep. Both on RC, I had been listening to your podcast and scoring in the mid-170s already, but your advice about LR totally made it click for me a few weeks before the test. For the first time, I started getting minus zero on some LR sections and scored a couple 180s in practice tests. I hope he's not going to ask if he should retake the test. (laughs) Hey, So I have some uh, room for improvement. Don't bother emailing us if you have a 176 or higher the answer is no, you should not retake the LSAT. Yeah. Okay. On the test, on the day of the test, I carried that advice with me, literally written on a note card <laughs> that I recycled right before the test. I'm so glad that you recycled it. <laughs> You're doing your part for society. The most important reminders were your advice to be aggressive with the arguments, actively questioning and grappling with each. I was a total asshole, Nathan. Great. Good. The advice to predict the answers before looking at the answer choices and the advice to slow it way down. I had always finished with extra time in the LR sections and performed well, but inconsistently. Ironically, after forcing myself to slow it way down with the arguments, I still usually finished early because choosing an answer was much easier and quicker after taking my time with the stimulus. All right. Wow. Did, preach. Did you write this, dude? Yeah, this no. is like <laughs> This is perfect. Spoken like a true prodigy. Thank you, 178. Anyway, I couldn't be happy with my results, and the weeks of agonizing waiting were totally worth it. I can pretty confidently attribute the last few points of improvement to your guys' advice. Thank you for that exclamation point. My only regret is that 179 was not a possible score. I was so close to that magic Ellie Woods result. Elle Woods. Woods. Oh, yeah, sorry. I haven't watched that that movie in a long time. (laughs) Have you seen it? I have a million years ago. I forgot that she got my exact LSAT score of 179. That wasn't your goal? You didn't to, watch that movie and then say, oh, I got to get a 179? Yeah, I intentionally missed a couple so that I could get a 179. To Enjoy match the re- L. Woods. To L, yeah. Enjoy the rest of your trip, Nathan. And thanks again to both of you. L minus one. Boy, love hearing that. That's, uh, don't even know what to say about that. That's just awesome. Yeah. It's congrats. It's, yeah, it's what, doable. What is, you know? And the question is No, there's how no awesome question. are you? Or? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh we could call it a humble brag, but it's not a humble brag at all. It's just a straight up brag that uh she got a one seventy eight and killed it. And um 
I like everything she's saying here. I mean, it, if you slow it way down, it gets a lot easier. And then that's where the really, really big scores come from. Yeah. So she's predicting the answers in, in advance. That's, that's how it's done right there. Yeah. Awesome. Um, next one. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm in LA these days, but I will go back to boy. How do you say that? Wangzhou? I don't even know. Somewhere in China. Sorry. Soon. I took an online course from another LSAT prep organization before, but the online course videos did not work when I logged into my account in China. Do you have any online students in the mainland of China these days? No, I don't. Do they have any issues playing your course videos? I don't know. I'm thinking about taking your online course when I'm back in China, but I'm worried the same issue may happen. Please let me know. Uh, yeah. I don't, ben, do you have any students in China watching your videos? Not that I know of. Yeah, not that I know of either. Shipping. Although I do have some in Canada, so I guess that... <laughs> yeah, that's almost the same. Maybe LSAC is legit in uh, bringing all their tests to Canada. This is the new wave of... Uh, yeah, I have students in Canada too, yeah. I mean, they do take it, uh, especially if they want to go to law school in the United States. But they... Um, yeah, I, I have had students like in Asia before it's a pain in the ass to ship materials and then whether or not the internet is going to work. I just don't know. I mean, I, I think that's like a question for the Chinese government. Yeah. What do you, you want to block LSAT? It's well, too logical. But I would also say, I mean, my free online class uses the same platform as my paid online class. So mm-hmm. one thing you could do for sure is you could just sign up for my free online class and there's five hours of video there. And if that video works when you're in China, then I'm sure the rest of the video will also work when you're in China. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, my score tracker uses the same platform as the class. The videos are hosted on YouTube. So if you can get to them via the score tracker, then you should be able to get to the class videos. Yeah. Okay. So no if you problem. can see our free stuff from wherever you are, then you can probably pay us. Um, yep. Okay. I'm an international student who finished LLM in Los Angeles and did the LSAT twice. I got my bachelor's degree in law in China. Although I tried hard to prepare for the test, I still find my vocabulary inadequate. I feel tired and I want to take a break before my next LSAT. Some people suggested that using SAT, yes, SAT, vocabulary flashcards and reading magazines like The Economist can be a good way to enlarge my vocabulary. What do you think? I don't have a problem with that. I think that, uh, if there are SAT vocabulary words that you don't know, um, they could be helpful. Yeah, sure. I mean, you also could just practice LSAT and just write down all the words that you encounter that you don't understand. For sure. Yeah, definitely. And that might be more beneficial because you're getting two birds with one stone, right? You're actually working on LSAT questions and you're also accumulating vocabulary. When you're reading The Economist, I mean, if it's boring and you're having a hard time getting through it, that just sounds painful to me. And I feel, I feel like there's probably faster ways that you could improve your, your vocabulary, including just, yeah, studying words that you encounter on actual LSAT tests. Yeah. I do like this SAT thing though, because she can uh, just download like an SAT vocab app yep. and just do it when you're, you know, just immediately working on vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. Cause SAT words, you know, that's geared for college students. You yep. should know those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my advice about the economist is that, you know, I would only read it if you actually enjoy it, because if you're not enjoying it, I think you could read anything else. Reading anything improves your vocabulary. You know, unless you're reading something that's like so far beneath you, 
Mm-hmm. But if you read a Stephen King novel, I guarantee Stephen King is going to use words that you don't understand. Yep. He's going to use words in different ways. You know, a word that you might understand in one context, but he's going to use it in an entirely different context. And he also will just straight up use vocabulary that you've never heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, and this applies to everyone, including me, you know. Um, so and that's, you know, that's a that's an a writer, he writes for entertainment, but wow, you can actually learn. Um, so <clears throat> I don't know about the economist, but I would read anything, anything that keeps you reading. That's what you should read. Cool. Let's see. Honestly, I have a high standard to myself and I want to go to a top 14 law school, especially those in large cities. My first score was 149 and I got 145 on my second official test. I know my goal is hard to reach, but I guess there is a way to do it. I listened to some episodes of your podcast and found them pretty awesome. I know that Nathan can sometimes be harsh in words, so I guess that your reply to my email can be a bit difficult for, oh, because they're anticipating Jasmine. Uh, best wishes, Jasmine. Jasmine's expecting that I'm going to be a dick to her, um, but I'm not. I, I think uh, this is very admirable. I think it might take you a year or two years. But I, I have seen students from China accomplish amazing things in the past, um, including this dude, Shui, that I went to journalism school with in Boston. Shui had a hard time sometimes putting English sentences together, and he was really difficult to understand sometimes. Mm. But Shui also challenged me to a Reader's Digest vocabulary quiz. And he pounded me. He kicked my ass on these Reader's Digest vocabulary quizzes. Mm -hmm. And I was in awe of how hard he was working. I I just, like, I couldn't believe it that this dude is learning another language by just basically brute force memorization of every word in the language. Mm -hmm. And with that type of... Uh, willingness to work and you know if you take a long view of things and you are patient and you just grind it out hey sky's the limit yeah jasmine's first score was 149 that's not terrible right we see 149s make it to 165 and we see 165s go to top 14s yeah it'd be interesting to know what her uh GPA was. Uh, if it's high, then she won't necessarily need to break into 170 to accomplish her goal. Um, uh, that just kind of depends. Yeah, she's going to have to upload all of her stuff to the Credential Assembly Service and see what they tell her her GPA is. Yeah. But it could be that a low 160s or mid 160s is enough for her to get into some T14 in some big school. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's probably not going to happen overnight, but. Uh, I would, uh, you know, if, if you think you need to take a break, you probably need to take a break. Yeah. But you can continue reading, you know, more books, more English as much as possible and come back to the LSAT uh, after a while and just keep working at it. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Jasmine. Yeah. So um, you want to take this next one? Sure. Uh, hey guys, longtime listener, love the podcast. I know that Nathan is a huge advocate of doing a lot of 35 minute sections, which is what I've been basing my study around lately. I'm studying for my fourth take and I've taken many full-timed practice tests before. Plus I'm enrolled in a rigorous graduate program. So I don't think stamina will be a big problem come test day. 
Yeah, good. I don't think stamina is ever a problem. My question is, for someone like me, a veteran LSAT taker, am I making a mistake by not doing more full-length timed practice tests? I changed to this method, the 35-minute section method, because the first time through, I burned through a lot of full practice tests without seeing a lot of improvement because I wasn't focusing on my weaknesses. Yeah, I don't care if this dude ever does a full test again. He's done it a lot. He's getting better at the 35-minute sections. He's learning more by doing the 35-minute sections because he's actually doing the review. So I, my philosophy, if you're good enough at the 35-minute sections, you're going to also be fine doing a whole bunch of them in a row. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where we disagree a little bit. I do think that... Um doing 35 minute sections back to back can be draining for some people. And I would be uh, remiss to encourage someone not to do that at least a few times before they take it officially to see what it's like and see how they deal with 35 minute sections back to back. I think we both agree that 35 minute sections and getting good at them is like supremely important. And once you're good at doing 35 minute sections, doing them back to back, um, is easier, but I would, I guess I would encourage people to still do full length tests. I think his mistake here was not that he did full length tests, it's that he failed to review them. Right. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I definitely encourage people to do full length tests every now and then, but I do really like 35 minute sections because people are more likely to review those. Yeah. And that's what I like about them. But I also like the full length tests. So people know what they're getting into. Yeah. You can do full tests if you want. Just if you do remember that you're going to have to block off some time to do the review part. Yep. Neither of us would allow you to do a full test and then not review it. That's a waste of time. Yeah. So block off, you know, whatever it's going to be like an hour and a half. Yeah. Two and a half hours to take the test and then an hour and a half, something like that, probably to review. And if you're not willing to block off that amount of time, then I don't think you should be sitting down doing a full length test to begin with. Yeah. Um, Relatedly, could you guys give me some advice that you normally give to high scorers? That is people right on the cusp of 170 or right above and want to get to 175. What are the things normally holding them back? I know this will be individualized, but are there any trends? I typically miss questions on LR and logic games. If that will be of any help, reading comprehension is usually my best section. Thanks so much, Tyler. I have a couple things. You you want to start with some, uh, what's the typical thing that somebody on the cusp of 170 and trying to get to 175, what are some things that they are missing usually from their game? I honestly, I think it's pretty individualized. I think I want to know like what they're doing. Um, hopefully they're doing the things that we always talk about. They're reading the passage first and some things like that. Sometimes they're not, they've been following like seven sage or something like that. And they have done well despite what they're doing. And then I'm like, Hey, look, I'm surprised you're approaching it this way, or they're not doing worlds in opportunities where they definitely could be. So, um, I don't know. I'm a little a little hesitant uh, to pin anything down. I I just feel like a lot of times I'm really curious, and this is not only true for people in the 170s, but just anywhere. Like how 
how are you thinking about this? Actually, I guess it is more for people the higher they get because the higher they get, they clearly know what's going on. It's just how are you utilizing your faculties to answer these questions? Um, when someone is scoring very low, it's like, well, you're not utilizing your faculties very well and you probably also don't understand like just a lot of fundamental things. So there's a lot to talk about and so it doesn't matter as much what we talk about because there is so much to talk about. Whereas here I really want to know like how exactly are you doing these things and thus how are you getting – how are you missing these questions? Which questions did you miss? Why do you think you missed them? Um, I think sometimes people focus on the logic uh, which is important, but you also got to think about like what steps did you take that led you to get confused between these two answer choices? Um, did you recognize what kind of question it was? Sometimes people who are scoring this high still don't necessarily know the difference between a necessary and a sufficient assumption question. And so they may not have the right goal. Like they've kind of answered these questions based on their sort of gut intuition um, intuitive response, and now they need to make that distinction to start getting them right. I don't know. That's my, my sense is that it's going to be pretty individualized. Yeah, it is pretty individualized. I I I thought of a couple. Um, what I think are pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, Tyler, really know the difference between a necessary assumption question and a sufficient assumption question? I mean, not only can you identify the question type. Because, of course, you need to be able to tell me this is a sufficient assumption question versus this is a necessary assumption question. But can you explain to me exactly what you're supposed to be doing on a sufficient assumption question and exactly what you're supposed to be doing on a necessary assumption question? Can you give me an example of an assumption that would be both necessary and sufficient? Can you give me an example of an assumption that would be sufficient but not necessary? Can you give me an example of an assumption that would be necessary but not sufficient? And knowing that distinction forward and backward can frequently make the difference between a 168 and a 171. And that's something that I see even high scorers sometimes struggle with because they'll get confused. I mean, I was working with a private student just the other day who was exactly having that problem where, you know, they could tell me what the question type was, but then their plan got really muddy when I started saying, well, what are you looking for on this type of question? they were giving me the sufficient assumption analysis when they were supposed to be giving me the necessary assumption analysis. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. Um, similarly, I've seen people who don't really understand the difference between a flaw question and a weakened question. Subtle difference there, but mm-hmm. flaw questions are much more descriptive and weakened questions are much more like change the argument. And so I see people picking uh, wrong answers on flaw questions where it's misdescribing the argument, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's something that even a high scorer will sometimes do. Yeah. Um, otherwise, yeah, I would say just definitely just whatever mistakes you're making, those are your problems. The advice doesn't really change. If you're at 170, that means you're missing like 10 questions. Yep. So the ones you miss are going to point out the things you don't understand. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Tyler. Um, Let's go into this next one, I guess. So, hey, guys. My name is Courtney. Cool. I hope we can use your name. I'm quickly approaching my senior year in undergrad at West Virginia University. I'll go ahead and apologize in advance for the lengthy email. I've been a listener of your podcast for quite some time, but this is my first time reaching out. 
hey, thanks for reaching out. I'm looking for some guidance for a, quote, super splitter or reverse splitter. A bit of background about me. I am completing my BA in economics, and I will apply to law school this fall with a 4.06. Wow, nice. I took the LSAT for the first time back in February and received an abysmal, or so it seemed at the time, a 158. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's a little low for your GPA maybe, but it's not horrible. I know that my big, big, big downfall was that I took the test with too few practice tests under my belt. Hindsight is twenty twenty. I guess. I prepped with Kaplan. Ouch. Because I had a scholarship that covered that prep class, but it was trash. <laughs> Get what you we didn't say it. Courtney said it. Yeah. Um, anyway... Since practicing for the LSAT, you know, speaking of Kaplan, dude, they are so freaking expensive for how yeah. little they give you. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, since practicing for the September test, I've been av- averaging around 163. Awesome. While I do feel pretty happy about that, I worry that anything that is not 170 plus makes me look shitty because of my high GPA. Mm. Mm, doesn't make you look shitty. Your high GPA makes you look good. Yeah. That's all. They're not going to look at your... It's not, they're not going to be like, <laughs> oh, you only got a 160 and you got a 4.06. You suck. We would prefer you get a 160 and a 3.5. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Like that, that's, they're not doing that analysis. So. Yeah. And wasn't it Berkeley, just to remind people, uh, different schools give different weight to LSAT and GPA. And I think yep. it was Berkeley that gave the most weight to the GPA. And the yep. general rule of thumb is that the top 14 are going to give more weight to the GPA yep. and everyone below that is going to give more weight to the LSAT score. Of course, it's different for every school, but that's roughly the trend. So given the schools that you're shooting for, um, they're going to give most weight. They're going to give the most weight to your GPA, which is awesome. So um, I'd be curious what your GPA ends up being after you submit your transcript to LSAC. But I think no, that, that I have says, some- No, dude. I Wait, will did apply this? to law school this fall with a 4.06 LSAC GPA. LSAC GPA. GPA. Jeez. Which I didn't even this? know was possible. Yeah, for some reason I thought that they... That they would cap it at four. Yeah. But apparently not. Well, there you go. Apparently I'm not even remembering what I'm reading. I should treat yeah. this like a reading comp passage. You really should. Yeah. Try harder. <laughs> Where's Courtney going to go with this? I think that <laughs> I have pretty good softs. And, um, oh, I was talking to someone yesterday and I said softs and they said, what? And I said it again, huh? And they're like, you're talking about socks? I'm like, yeah, you need plaid socks when you apply to school. (laughs) Um, she said she has pretty good softs and I know that I have some strong letters of rec, including one from a U of university of Chicago law grad, who is my supervisor and the clinic director of the West Virginia innocence project where I'll start my third year working this fall. That's good, actually. It shows commitment. Yeah, three years. Yeah. yeah. So I pose the question to you all, in what range should my LSAT fall so that I am not seen as just a splitter? Mm -hmm. Stop worrying about it. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Just do the best you can on your LSAT and be done with it. Yeah, your question is invalid. You should score as high as you possibly can on the LSAT, period. Yeah. also this nomin it's, she's so caught up in the label of splitter. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be seen as just a splitter. They don't do that. <laughs> they're they're going to make an index number for you and your GPA is going to make your index number awesome. And the, 
the better you can, you know, the higher you can score on the LSAT, your index number is going to get even better. So I don't, I don't know why splitter is just, it's not a thing. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. it's not relevant. It's not, it's not important. So you, yeah, it's great. You've got your, your average up to a 163. That's awesome. Get, if you can get a 165, do that. If you can get a 167, do that. (laughs) I mean, just get the best scores you possibly can. I don't care about your letters of recommendation. I don't care about anything. I care about no matter who you are, you want the best LSAT score you can get because it opens up a whole range of doors and it changes the price you're going to pay. And and by not setting a specific number, you're not going to be like stressing out about it as much. You're just preparing and reviewing questions that you get wrong. Anytime you take an LSAT, it doesn't matter what your score is. Look at the questions you got wrong, figure them out, and then try to take another test based on whatever you learn from what you reviewed. And eventually, you'll end up with a a score, and that's your score. And then you might decide to take it again because your practice tests were higher, or you might keep it because your practice tests were the same or lower, whatever. That's just the best you can do in the time that you have. But your number one focus should always be on learning from your mistakes. It's kind of like those Steve Martin people who are like, how do I talk to an agent? No one cares about the freaking agent. (laughs) Get good at your jokes. Get good at these questions, and your score will come. Yeah. So. Anyway, sorry for that uh, tirade. But to put this in perspective, she continues, my two goals, my two goal schools are George Washington, looking at you, Ben, Ben, and Georgetown. Um, For those people who don't know, I went to GW. Uh, You're already in a good place. I just looked at the LSAC uh, GPA calculator, and they put you at getting, let's see here. Yeah, also... Go look at the LSAT GPA calculator, people. Yeah, <laughs> it's public. We've talked about this on the podcast before, and I'm not like busting Courtney for any, you know, specifically, but just everybody. It's not so interesting that you keep asking us these this same question because you can answer this question for yourself. Yeah, uh, put in your LSAT GPA or your LSAT GPA. Put in any LSAT score, and the LSAT GPA calculator will spit out numbers like the numbers that Ben is going to read right now. Yeah, so for George Washington, for example, let's assume, well, we know you got your 4.06, that is an LSAC GPA, thank you, and you are scoring around 163, right? Yeah, so if we, in. Hmm? That's going to be in at GW. Oh, for sure. That puts her at an 86 to 96% chance likelihood of admission. Yeah, That's so you're going to get considering the softs. Right yep. now, you're getting scholarships at GW if you get a 163. It doesn't have an asterisk that says, oh, <laughs> but, but you're a splitter. So as we're a splitter gonna... <laughs> status. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And then, uh, you know, this this calculator, uh, these results don't include Georgetown. Georgetown um, didn't participate. Okay. Yep. But uh, I think Vanderbilt is a pretty close comparison, and they're putting you at 56 to 66%. I, I mean, I think that's still a very good chance you add in your softs. I think you're already in a great place. You still have time to prepare. You're going to do better, hopefully, on the actual test. So um, your chances are just going to go up. You may even change your goal scores. Secondly, she continues, about the not being able to read thing. Uh, The reason that my LSAT is on the lower side is that because I'm trash at reading comprehension. (sighs) My last prep test, I went nine minus nine total in lr so between the two sections minus one in games and minus 11 in rc 
when I finish the passage, I feel like I understood, but as soon as I get to the questions, all of this totally falls apart. From what I've listened to in your podcast thus far, I haven't heard much about how to address major issues like this in reading comp. But hold on. I think the only thing we've addressed is major issues. <laughs> like we haven't really delve into the details of the individual question types. Yeah. Hmm. Anyways, I'll continue. I've had to digest large volumes of dense reading during undergrad, but something about reading for reasoning structure and not getting caught up in the details. What are you talking about? That's all this is. This is, I think sometimes people think that the reading comp passage is long because it's long compared to everything else on the LSAT, but the reality is that it's extraordinarily short. It's a half a page. Yeah. You can read it and remember almost all of it well, if you just pay attention. Is this some Kaplan bullshit that she's that she's talking about here? She says Probably so. She you actually that, paid money to get advice that has put you in the wrong direction. Yeah. She thinks she's supposed to be reading for structure and not getting caught up in the details. Oh, yeah, that is so it's so the opposite. What are you talking about? You need to read this shit and understand it. And the details reveal the structure. Yeah, the details are part of the passage. It's only 60 lines and you need to you need to have a good handle on what the 60 lines say. Now, you're not supposed to memorize the details, but knowing the details to the best of your ability is a great plan. This this idea that she's reading for structure, boy, do I not teach that. That is not something that I ever no, talk about. That's like read first paragraph, first sentence of each paragraph, really understand it, and then skim through the paragraph. <laughs> Total garbage. Here's yeah. one thing to keep in mind. There are, as you said, there are like 60 lines, right? So yeah. what does that actually mean? There's like 15 sentences yeah. in these passages. 15. They all matter. You just, all 15 ev- of them. Every sentence is, yeah, significant and conveying some idea. This is why we say over and over again, if you don't understand what that sentence said, stop and reread it, because that is going to be one of the 15 clues which will help you answer six to seven, maybe eight questions. Yeah. I There's no reason for her to be missing 11 on reading comprehension if she's only missing nine total on logical reasoning. Yeah. You're, you don't, you're, you don't suck at reading. She thinks she sucks at reading. She doesn't no, suck at reading. No, you're very good at reading if you yeah. can do that well in LR. Yeah, you're only missing four or five per section on LR. That means you're a much stronger than average reader. And your problem here is that you're a- addressing these reading comprehension passages as if they're some weird animal something different that, Oh, this is an LSAT reading comprehension passage. So I better not get too caught up in the details. I better read for structure. I don't know who taught you that. I mean, it sounds like Kaplan taught you that, but that is just trash. That is not helpful. Yep. You need to read the passage as if you were going to in five minutes, you have to go down the hallway and you have to explain to your boss why this passage exists. What is this? What do they want? And you have to catch the big picture. What is the point about this passage? But it's not like the details keep you from understanding the big picture. As Ben says, the details are going to reveal the structure. The details are going to reveal the big picture of their argument. Yeah. So uh, I'm almost certain that Courtney is... Wait, Courtney? Yes. I'm almost certain that Courtney is reading too quickly. Um. She thinks she understands it, but then she can't answer the questions. Well, that means you didn't understand it. 
Yeah. So you got to slow down and focus on accuracy. You got to slow down and focus on really understanding it. Uh, you got to let go of all of this bullshit reading comprehension technique you've learned somewhere. Because uh, I, I, I teach like basically no technique. <laughs> Just read it carefully. And yeah. that means if you don't understand something, you got to read it again right away. I, I echo everything you're saying, and I, I would go back to her sentence here. She says, I've had to digest large volumes of dense reading during undergrad. I think this <laughs> she is equating this half-page passage with <laughs> large volumes of dense like textbooks, right? Yeah. And she's not alone. I hear this all the time. I've been reading so much, and my undergrad was, you know – um, English literature evaluation, blah, blah, blah. And I've read so much stuff. Yeah. Reading tons of books for homework and tons of chapters for homework, uh, is a very different matter than sitting down and reading a half a page of text. If, if a professor gave you a half a page of text, you'd look at them and say, this is the homework. I need to have this done by three days from now. (laughs) I'll be done in two minutes. In, in, in school, in undergrad and in law school, especially in law school, you're reading ridiculously large volumes. And in that case, half your job is to just figure out what parts to ignore. Yeah. On the reading comprehension, you're reading 60 lines, 15 sentences, and you're not supposed to ignore any of that. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to comprehend it, not memorize, but comprehend all of it. You're not allowed to go to sleep in your homework in, in university or your certainly your homework in law school. You are going to go to sleep on a lot of it. There's a lot of it that there's just no reason why you need to be reading that stuff. And, you know, they give you 100 pages and you just don't need to be reading all of it. Yeah. And that is not what the LSAT reading comprehension looks like. They're going to they are specifically interested in if you can read these 60 lines and really understand what they say. They're going to ask you seven or eight questions about 60 lines. So you have to understand the 60 lines. Yeah. By the way, I was going to say one thing you, you mentioned your, your goal is to read and understand and not memorize. And I completely agree with that. We're not trying to memorize this stuff, but at the same time, if you really read a sentence, understand what it's saying and have some sort of engagement with it, like, hmm, that's stupid, or hmm, actually, that's really interesting. I never thought about that before. Where does the author seem to be going with this? The natural outcome of that will be that you will finish the passage and remember 80% of the details. This happens to me all the time. I'm like, well, they said D. They said D. And people are like, where did they say it? And I'm like, "I I don't know where they said it. It was somewhere near the end here. Shall we go look for it? We can go look for it. But my mind has it in it. <laughs> yep. And sometimes I people feel I think people are like, well, that's great. You you remembered it. I didn't. Well, I remembered it because I engaged with the passage on that level. Yeah. I read it a little slower than you did. I read it a little bit more carefully than you did. I just paid a little bit better attention. And so I remember that they said it. Yeah. Well, anyways, thank you, Courtney. Good question. And it's a thing that a lot of people, I think, need to hear. So we appreciate that. Uh, as always, you guys can uh, email us questions at help at thinkinglsat.com. That email goes to both of us. Um, and you can always tweet us at thinkinglsat or pose questions on our blog, which is thinkinglsat.com. Sign up for the uh, 
to get updates as soon as we post an episode at thinkingoutside.com forward slash blog forward slash subscribe. That's really long. Good luck. And thank you as always for listening. Awesome. Talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.